You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Hey friends, Dan Duvall here to tell you that at dandevall.com, you can find merch and you can also become a podcast patron. That's how we are doing this production without commercials, um, lots of advertisements and other stuff because we felt that it would be best received clean. So come support us with a minimum of $5 a month. Do that and we'll give you all kinds of bonuses as well, including early access to podcasts and uh, discounts at our online store, dandevall.com is where you find everything, plus past podcast links and so forth. We also want to let you know that uh, the church, that is Bride Ministries, is there for you. And if you have needs for deliverance, coaching, prayer resources, all kinds of other good stuff, check out the church at bridemovement.com. With that, we're going to get right to the program. We got a lot of good stuff to talk about. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Those are your announcements. Well, friends, uh, I'm back on Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. And I have Mr. Tony Rodriguez back with me. Is that is that how you pronounce your last name, or am I saying it wrong? Well, you're saying it right for most for the most part. Um, the S on the end is Rodriguez, is the actual so it rhymes with King Roe's. Like you know who who goes back in their family tree that far, but basically it's it's pronounced Rod Riggs, but Rodriguez is just as good, and it's um you know, natural pronunciation for most of the world. Very few people are aware of the Rodriguez. The, the Z on the end is Rodriguez. Exactly. So, so I you know that I'm not particular. I've been called much worse. <laughs> Tony Rodriguez. Got it. Yeah, I will know uh, that yeah. from now on. You don't Someone, have to worry about it. One of my it. listeners told me, I think you're saying his name wrong. And I said, really? Because my, in my family, um, one of the family last names is Rodriguez with, with the Z because mm-hmm. we're Puerto Rican. And so like I, I saw your name, I'm like, oh yeah, that is very close, but no, Rodriguez. Right. So that's Spanish. The, the So it was already existing in uh, history. So, and I forget the year, but it was during the spice when the Portuguese were negotiating the spice trade there was a explorer that went to India and he just kicked butt on the whole way there. He had a very successful, he he made the equivalent of billions of dollars of trade deals with people about the spice road. And when he got back, King Roiz, R-O-I-Z renamed it. His name was uh, Fernando something, Dorio, Dorio, Dorio Fernando, Fernandez, Dorio Fernandez, whatever. When he got back, the King named him, the entire King's court and his entire family, he renamed them Rod Riggs and invented with the S on the end. That's was the origination of the name. I went, you know, whatever, just kicked around and was reading it back in the day because my family in Hawaii, they kind of keep kept track pretty good lineage of how we came from. So I researched it, but he renamed his kids, the King's court and everybody was Rod Riggs. And that's where the name began. And it was a, it was a title for that guy. 
because of that. So that was like, you know, family history. And I, I forget, honestly, I forget what year it was. It was very long ago, 1200 or 1400 or something. Well, but I don't care I, to, to anybody listening to people that corrected you. When people call me Rodriguez. I'm very flattered that to just be spoken to. Just don't call me late for dinner. This is a, you know, don't call me late for dinner. Well, friends, uh, that is the that that's the whole story right there. He wrote a book called Series Colony Cavalier, and I read it, and uh, my wife read it. She actually finished it first because she kept taking it off of my book table and reading it herself. I. At one time, she just took it right out of my hands. True story. So <laughs> great book. Um, really covers a, a fascinating, fascinating encounter. And um, we had a really great discussion last time. And folks, you know, as good as the interview was, it's not nearly as good as what we've been talking about offline. It's just so much fun. So uh, we are uh, going to continue our conversation today, Tony, because we left all of my listeners with this awful cliffhanger. Some of them went and bought your book. Fortunately for some of them, they already had it. They were just happy to hear us talking. And so when we left off, we, we were talking about the moon. Uh, we, we had talked about how, and, and, and folks, if you are jumping into part two with me and Tony, I'm not going to recap. Part one is online. Just, just go to the podcast, dandeval.com our YouTube, anywhere that's connected, every podcast channel that we have on all the different things and listen to part one. But, you know, you you were on the moon. You, you had been given this in, encounter with a, an insect type being. Uh, they were training you guys to not consider your lives when you were in battle scenarios. And, uh, you had already done some time on Earth and you were transitioning to Mars, Tony. Yes. Um, a, lot, a few things have come to light about that process of getting there. Um, after this, what happened in the arena, with, with they test, it basically was a field test of us to see if one of us would give our life to defend the rest of us and see if that worked, the fight or flight response. And so they were happy with it. And we went on a bigger ship. The next morning, they got us ready. So we, we stayed, we had medical, I forget, and honestly, I forget exactly where we left off, Dan. Um, it's, uh, been a few weeks and I, my, uh, it's funny cause my short-term memory isn't that great. My long-term it's memory okay. seems to be good. I mean, you've told the story so many times and you've done a lot it's, of podcasts. It's, I say a lot of things twice in a lot of, to a lot of people all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we it, were talking about the, you know, the difference between the programmers on the moon versus earth, because you, you were talking about, you know, the non-human entities that were doing some of the programming on the moon and uh, we were really you know they, they had kind of they were wrapping up their programming of what i, I believe was your clone body mm -hmm. and on the moon before shipping you off to mars for the next phase so i guess uh we can kind of pick up here how did they get you from the moon to Mars. So they loaded us up the very next morning after the thing in the arena. We slept in the metal. So we went back to like an infirmary, like a place with, um, you know, 10 or 15 cots in an examination room where we all got a physical. 
And then when they let us sleep right there, that you could sleep right there, that's where you're going to be tonight. And so we did. And the next morning they got up, they brought us clothes, change of clothes, and they took us down to the hangar and we got on a, you, it was just like walking onto an aircraft, you know, the umbilical that you walk on. It was bigger and it was airtight. Uh, it was a bit more beefier version of that, but you walked in an umbilical and they had little windows. You could see the hangar, what was out. And we got on a much larger craft. It was very spacious and it had bars. So whereas the other craft that I flew to the moon in was big, this one had had bars that went, they're like vertical poles with a pole that, that um, connected them down the aisles. So imagine an airplane with big, with a tall ceiling and much wider seats. And it had like a network of bars that were above. Anyhow, we got on that and I just want to say this. I, I, I just want to, I just want to say something. Okay. Please. So I, I don't know how many people are going to listen to this that followed other talks, pod, you know, interviews that I've done. I was, this was one of the things like originally when I was working with researchers said, how long was the flight from the moon to Mars? And I said, man, I don't know. I can't remember. It's weird. It's like, I don't remember it. It was almost instant. It feels like it was instantaneous. And this is a strange phenomenon and it happens a lot to people. And a lot of people hear my information and they accept it as something that they went through because they went through something similar. There was another whistleblower that came forward and said that the, the trip to Mars and elsewhere in the solar system from the moon, that they put you to sleep. That no matter what, this and this was something that was specific to Mars Colony Corporation. They had a technology and I talked about it in the book that the room I stayed in, I only had a few minutes after I got back to my room before I had to go to sleep. It was, they had a way to induce sleep. And I remember fighting it and there was no fighting it. It would give you a little two minute warning to get in bed. And there were times when I tried to not get in bed and see what happened. And I woke up on the floor the next morning in very uncomfortable position because as soon as it goes off, you're going to sleep. It's a technology that's like a local, who knows, I don't know what it is, plays a tone or something but you immediately go to sleep. And the ship from the ride from the moon to Mars was very long, but they put you to sleep. And I can kind of remember that when we, when we took it, when we, when we flew out, there was a few minutes and then I just went to sleep. And so it felt like an instantaneous trip. So that's what I always maintained in all of my interviews. Like, man, it was an instant, but really after I heard that other uh, whistleblower say that I went, that's what they did. I kind of had the real, realization that I was that it was the same thing. I was just unaware of that technology at that moment. Like when I rode on that ship to Mars, at that moment, I had no idea that they could induce sleep that easily. After I got to Mars in my room, I, I had that technology. I got used to it, but I never put the two together that the actual ship ride from the Earth to Mars, they used that technology because it was a slower ship. It wasn't one of the newer, like... The Max von Laue that I worked on on Ceres Colony could go from the Earth to Mars in 30, 40 minutes. It was very fast. And they would slow down. There were times when they would slow down, but they they didn't take long to get most of the places in the solar system. It was just a few hours to the Kuiper Belt. But that ship was obviously slower, and they did make us sleep during that trip. Anyhow, that's how we got there. It was a very big craft. It, had, it was, imagine an airplane with a tall ceiling with with handles that you could grab in case the gravity was off and uh 
20, 30 seats wide in rows of, of seats and big space, very spacious seats as well uh, for considering, considering what we, what airplanes are like nowadays. It was very <laughs> yeah. comfortable. Little sardine um, cans. Yeah, it's very, it was very comfortable as opposed. So you, we were talking off, off air about um, it's probably changed a great deal since, you know, the, with technology and maybe they've figured that out. So they squeeze more people in and, and, you know, the quality airplanes used to be really comfortable back in the fifties and sixties and uh, they, they keep getting smaller. So probably the same evolutions happened in the spacecraft that are, that they're using right now. Anyhow, when we got to Mars, we got into orbit around Mars and they announced the pilot announced that um, the airspace was that we were not cleared to land and we were in orbit for a few hours, a couple hours, two Two, two or three hours, I, I forget, maybe four hours. Um, and we waited and they let us experience zero gravity. They turned the gravity off for a while. And out of that whole space, the, 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 um, the flight wasn't packed. Most of the seats were empty when I, when I flew there and we were waiting. Most of the seats were empty in that big, I mean, it was like a hundred seats and maybe 30 or 40 of them were full. There was, it was, there was a lot of empty space. And I, I remember feeling relieved, but cause I had social anxieties back then. And, um, you know, I was relieved that it was an empty seat next to me. Like anybody is on an airplane ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I remember it was because of social anxiety. I just didn't, I was afraid of people. Basically I'd been abused greatly up until that point. Um, so but then we landed. Yes, I'm going to take you straight through. I'm going to make this quick. We landed. They let us out into a we we walked out an umbilical and down onto a like a tarmac inside a hangar bay, and there were soldiers there that immediately separated myself and the others from the program from the other passengers on the flight, and they put bags over our heads and walked us and they tied us together. They like zip tied us and put bags over our heads. And they they uh, escorted us to a smaller craft, and you could tell it was smaller because it was noisy, and and you you could every now and then you could kind of feel turbulence. It wasn't really, um, and we flew to a smaller base, a forward base that had been abandoned. That was a much bigger facility, like a research facility that had been overrun by insects at one point, and they had many casualties, and so they evacuated it and now we were the we were a military group back in that base to get it back online and to run military um missions sorties against the the local insectoids and that's that's how that took shape it was an experimental program in a combat area you talked about this in your book and i and i found it so interesting to realize that there are bullies everywhere even on Mars, that's right. Well, uh, they were Marines. They were they were, um, as Randy Kramer puts it, Marine Corps Special Special Division. But they were U.S. soldiers, and I don't want to say Marines, or I don't want to ascribe, you know, in my mind they were Marines, but I don't want to say that that's you know they were they were Mars Colony Corps U.S. Special Forces. Basically, they were U.S. soldiers. And they were there in, under the same kind of circumstances that I was. And these guys were so, I mean, full-time, the, these guys were the real deal. They were, you know, we, 
I hate it when I do an interview and they say that I was a super soldier because I was farther. There's nothing to be farther from the truth. I was a, um, a peripheral. What our unit was was a peripheral for soldiers. You get what I mean? Like we were a we were a supporting. We were a technology that was to support soldiers. They were trying to get boots on the ground quickly and cheaply, and you know, with people that were not trained. The soldiers there were very highly trained, very well equipped, and they didn't. They were hard to come by. They couldn't just fill the battlefield. They couldn't just meet a million insects on the battlefield with a million of these soldiers. They just couldn't. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to get more boots on the ground. And that's what our program was. It was an experiment. So when you say that these guys were on, on, uh, on Mars, kind of like under the same circumstances that you were, your circumstance was what, what you call a 20 and back. And you were at this point about nine years into that, eight, nine. So I was, I put it on my timeline. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't know. I was about six or seven years into it. Seven, seven years, I believe. I think at the time I was probably 16 years old or 17, right in there. Like that was the age. And I remember in the beginning that they said, well, so when I left Seattle, that they said that I was too young, but they just lied about it. They said that my age and it didn't matter that they didn't, it didn't matter that like, only, like the only military only took people at 17 and I was close, but not quite to my birthday. So I was 16 and 17 when all that happened. So, and then the, the time frame that I came up with. So when I go back and I look at my time that I remember serving on the first ship and on the second ship, the time, the, the number that comes up on series colony is about 12 years. So that period in Mars, you know, was seven to eight years of seven, my seventh to my eighth year, I guess, was was in Mars. It felt feels like it wasn't long. And do you think these super soldiers were also on 20 and back? So do you think there was a yes. different project? They no, were abs absolutely. And they were there, there were they so they had you know, there were soldiers there and they were doing they were doing light work. They had people there that were doing labor work so they were they were not combat they were soldiers but they were not combat soldiers so they had they had logistical support they had medical they had a medical um facility that was full of doc like they had a doctor and there were command guys there there and there were contractors there were independent contractors there were corporate and basically had um the authority so they they sat at their own table with the people that were uh, i guess a colonel and, you know, the, the people that the, the, the military that was in charge sat at the same lunch table with these contractors and they were the guys that were in charge. And then the combat soldiers sat at another table and we sat at another table like during our, you know, we we slept in the combat soldier uh, level of the base. So the other other personnel that were doing things like, you know, the medicine and then, you know, keeping the the things running. You know, they were doing, you know, um, working on the in the hangar bay, like the people, the hangar bay staff, we, they didn't eat with us. We were we were on the lower level and we were kept away from all of them. So the combat, the combat soldiers were with us and us and the command. Sorry if I'm on. A... What were those uh, meal times like? Lame. <laughs> it, it was like uh, getting bullied at school again. It was. It was a tray. It was a buffet. The food wasn't too bad, but it was not too good either. But it was food, and uh, it was like um, 
I remember peas and and like a process, like a like a chicken block, you know, like a block <laughs> of chicken and potatoes. It was that. It was like that. So it was a kit, you know, and you it was a buffet. So you got your tray and you sat back down and they would they would pick on us. So those guys, you know, I might go, I might go, um I'm I may have with my description of them been hard on it, but I do empathize with those guys in their situation. These were young guys that were in like 19, 20, 21 years old. They were young, they were jacked up on they they were giving these guys drugs when we went when we went and did combat missions we they, we were on drugs and we had the suit would stab you and give you a short stimulus that lasted 20 or 30 seconds of being not feeling pain and um they were locked up with no girls no nothing and they were blowing off steam and this so they had us there that were basically flunkies compared to them so they picked on us you know we were they had fun with us and so it doesn't mean what they did. A lot of that, what they did was right. There were some bad things that happened. And that was, I guess that set the stage up. So later on, I, you know, not to give the whole thing away in the book, but I did do a combat mission where I, we were engaged and I did have an interaction with one of the insects. So two, there were six of us that went out. We got separated into threes and two of the guys I was with that, that I, you know, it was myself and two others. They died. They were engaged and died. And because I was the last, I, they had, they were in front of me and I was the last one. So that they, the insectoid got me first and it let me live. So there was a, there was a whole complicated interaction with that thing. But because of that, because of the lifestyle in the base with the soldiers, I was left with feeling like the insectoid that was a, enemy combatant that came up and interacted with me telepathically was more professional and more respectful to me than the humans that were back on the base. Like I was treated with very disrespectfully and not, you know, I was abused. We were all, we were abused. We were slave, we were slave labor for them. And what we were as a, as a support soldier was basically somebody, a dog to kick. And because of that lifestyle, because of what happened, it escalated when I had, the insectoid was like, look, I don't want to hurt you. You know, it was, it would, it would tell me things that, you know, I don't want to hurt you, but I need to know what you are. And I need to know what your purpose is for what, you know, because we were something new on a battlefield, on an active battlefield. Like this had been going on for a long time. And then, um, and they had us dressed up in environmental suits that were bright white. We were, I looked like a golf ball out on the, out in the middle of the desert, Martian desert in the middle of the day. We were very bright. So we were bait for them. And as the insectoids moved closer to us, they had guys with rail guns up on the hill that would engage them. And we, the first couple of missions, I never even saw any of it. There were, there were engagements around us that we had no idea what happened. We just walked out there and then the insectoids um, adapted their strategy and were able to engage us. And so when we had fatalities and then I was, basically rescued by two of the soldiers and then they debriefed but what i'm saying is during that interaction the insectoid even though i was a prisoner of war and i was badly injured was very it was still more respectful to me than the entire time that i had spent on that base like not one human really treated me that with that kind of 
courtesies with those courtesies i found that part of the uh, book to be absolutely fascinating tony and i mean on so many levels right the fundamental lack of kindness and empathy and just care from from these human people despite their condition um obviously is awful but we've all been through different degrees of bullying as well like i said so you kind of identify as gosh it was really bad though but the other thing that's just so fascinating about that whole piece is i mean nasa's still trying to tell us that they're working on getting to mars we have we have a mars rover that can take pictures like and and uh, we're still trying to debunk the face on Mars. I'm sure you know all about that. So uh, here, your experience with Mars Corp. There's actually a whole corporation that is working with the military and has bases and people operations going back decades at minimum. There's a great deal of infrastructure on Mars that I remember from when I was there. And if I was 17 years old when it happened, then that means... Uh, 1989. So there were there were entire cities underground that were built underground, but they had big open atrium areas. Big. They were very modern. They were very well um, frivolously architectured. You know, like the architecture wasn't Spartan. It was frivolous. So they had big. Everything was had like a rounded swoop to it. The building, you know, everywhere, and uh, it was very it was very plush and pleasant in the city. When I when I left the base after they canceled that program, we were there as a lame duck for like six weeks till we did nothing. And then we went for reassignment to one of the cities, one of the bigger cities. And it was completely underground, but it, they were domes that were clear. So you could see the dirt on the outside of the dome piled up on it, like that it was buried. But the material was clear, like, you know, it was like a geodesic dome, but you could see through it. But on the other side of it was dirt piled up. So whatever it wasn't glass um but anyhow what from that it went to um like i said and there were there were citizens there was a lot of, there was a heavy military uh, presence when i went into that city but there were ets there and there were people that were looked like civilians like it like it looked like um I didn't spend a lot of time in the city square. Like I was rushed off to my area and I had an apart, I was given an apartment, my own apartment. And it was like in a school area. So I had a short walk to my class every day and I was given aptitude tests. And then I was retrained for basically to be ship maintenance into ship maintenance. Um, but during that time, I didn't really come across a lot of people, but it, before and after, like when I got off the the transport, and waited for my, you know, there was an officer that walked me and uh, the rest of us. And he said, you guys sit right there. There were water feet, there were palm trees, there were water, there was a water fountain, you know, like it looked like a shopping mall. Um, but during that time, there were civilians. And that was the other thing is there were just normal people that were so civilians with, you know, you get a lot of guys in suit and tie kind of attire, more like, more like suit, no tie was the, was the attire for guys and briefcases and women in dresses. And it would look like there was the area I was in was like formal, you know, or people traveling like, like an, you know, people kind of dressed up. Um, 
but yeah. And then I talked privately with a guy named Randy Kramer, if your listeners aren't aware, but, and he said that he estimates there was something like 10 and a half million people on Mars at the time he was there, which is kind of in the same, I think, time frame, right around late eighties. Um, so yeah, there's a huge infrastructure there and NASA knows about the air and the environment. You know, people, a lot of people, I did an interview uh, for uh, MUFA and a couple of guys are like scientists that were in the, it wasn't an interview. It was like a live um, talk where there was a Q and a like, I don't know, 30 or 40 people in there in a zoom. And so a couple of guys are very skeptical. He's like, look, Mars only has 1% or 2% of earth's atmosphere. So I'm very skeptical that you were outside in the atmosphere, Tony. And it's because, yeah, I, I can see that. And then after I thought about it, I was in the middle of a few other questions and I realized, I went, wait a minute, I remember the atmosphere was tall, like our ship was flying in the atmosphere very far up. I remember them, I remember the pilot explaining that, so I went back and looked, and I thought Mars is a smaller, uh, it's one-fourth or something, one-half, I forget. The small Because of the smaller, only 1% of Earth's atmosphere total is on Mars. But because of that, because Mars' size and the gravity, the atmosphere goes almost twice as far above the ground as the atmosphere on earth so the atmosphere is very tall on mars so there's a because it's smaller it actually turns out to be quite a bit of air quite a bit of atmosphere if you say just one percent of the earth's atmosphere but on a planet that's much smaller it's actually quite a lot of air and so the the other thing is what most people don't realize when i talk about mars too is in the equator areas when you when you talk about the equator, it gets up to 70 degrees 70 80 degrees in the daytime it gets very cold at night. We were not allowed, we were briefed to never be outside at night. That was the idea, it was very daytime missions. But where I was at that forward base, I remember that it was cold, but it wasn't unbearably cold when we went outside. And we had open masks. So I believe also, and I um, am only speculating, but I believe that there was a surgery that they gave us before we went that helped us breathe better in those. At, uh, basically helped us be more efficient with oxygen so not so that not only mars but any other atmosphere if we were short of oxygen that i believe that there was a treatment that they gave us like a surgery that mm -hmm. allowed us to breathe better the suit when we exerted ourselves and we had to start running and you couldn't run in the atmosphere like i said i tried to describe it in the book but the first couple steps imagine if you and i are on mars our first couple steps we would run, but then you kind of turns into taking leaps, you know, like the, you can get a couple steps off, but once you get the speed up, you're leaping, you're, you're doing this. And uh, when you exerted yourself, the suit would give oxygen. It, it would spray oxygen up where you could breathe it because you began to ex exert it. And because of that system that we could, we could breathe the air while we were not exerting ourselves. It, it could have a small tank and last a very long time. You didn't have to take out this big apparatus with tons of air on it. So it was just being efficient. We weren't we weren't solely breathing off the suit. We weren't solely always breathing the air, but there was a way the system there, and it was just very efficient. And the, I say it to this day, I've never felt more comfortable clothes than that suit that I wore. I've never worn a more comfortable article of clothing or shoes. The shoes I had. It was it was freaky. It was like the suit could adjust, and it was very, it was the most comfortable thing that I've ever worn. So it was a different technology than clothes than we're used to, and I've said that a lot. And I kind of throw that out there 
just for you know history's sake to say because that those because that there's an advancement in clothing that's coming that's going to be like whatever that was whatever whatever they did it was a suit that looked like it was a rubbery suit and looked like it was going to be uncomfortable but in fact it was extremely comfortable so um, for what it's worth fascinating so i mean the disinformation is just obviously uh disgusting i i um <laughs> the level of disinformation mm-hmm. um so so there's a massive city that you were a part of mars corp was working with the, the the government they had military there they had people there citizens um and 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 it was like a whole section of the planet that was occupied by these cities that were with people and then there were other areas of the planet that they were actually occupied by other groups including these insects that you guys were having incursions with yes and so and- the the places that i visited when i went from one to the other base were spread out quite far it was a long flight to get to the next one on mm. on a shuttle. It was like a shuttle, like more like a like a combat, like a vertical takeoff jet kind of craft. It, it had turbulence. It felt air. It wasn't like a like an anti-grav craft at all. Solely, I believe it had anti-grav, but it was also a more efficient, like a plane um, that it flew. Sorry to interrupt. No. So the cities were, the human cities were actually separated by large distances. Yes. I mean, all of this is this really interesting stuff because it's like, okay, this is a, a world that we're told doesn't exist. In fact, millions of people are involved in this world. And as you experienced it, all, all kinds of other intelligent groups, including these insects and who else knows what else is there. Um, we were we were briefed on reptilians, but we were not in an area with any reptile. I like the entire time there, I didn't see any kind of reptile. We were briefed. We saw we saw a short clip that these are here as well, and don't be surprised if you do come across them. They showed you know there was a short movie like a briefing, but I we I never came across any reptilian being when I was there. And how long were you on Mars altogether? Do you estimate? I always like to say about six months, but really when you look at the timeline, it's probably between six months and a year, something like that. The time that the entire time that I was at the forward base was probably three or four months and then taken and then given aptitude tests and then retrained. So however long that it might have been a whole year, but it felt um, it didn't feel like it was a long time. To put it, to put it, it was a it, it eats up it eats up an hour of the interview. But it's only a, a one out of the 20 years. It doesn't, most interviews never make it to series to any kind of detail talking about series colony because there's so much, everybody, because there there are so many other people that have the same experience of going to Mars and other people that are that are talking on the in the community have been to Mars and back. There's a lot of people that have come forward and have credible accounts of going there. So it's like, that's what everybody wants to talk about. You know, how they want to bang, they want to ping my account off somebody else's account. But the fact is, I was there a short time, and I went on to Series Series Colony Corp. After that, I was sold off from. I was a asset owned by Mars Colony Corporation or some private corporation, and I was sold to the Series Colony Corporation at that time. So let's just take that journey. 
Mars was six months. This is a little blip, folks. You can get the book. Uh, we are going to journey now to, to your series experience because there is so much there. And uh, okay, how did they get you from Mars to series? So, right. Um, just go ahead and ask me anything to say that's going to be very unbelievable for the, for somebody that's hearing this for the first time. Somebody that's hearing this for the first time, this is going to sound completely unbelievable, but I'm going to tell you that this is, I have, this is a very vivid, very clear memory of the trip. One day, instead of going to the class, they came and got me and walked me, uh, a, a guy with a, uh, beret, a, a big guy walked me to a train station on, on Mars. So, and like, again, so it was like carpeted. A big like a like a shopping mall with the 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 top of the ceiling went up, but there was a big concrete like a swooping curve. It was very you know like you see in some airports that are very impressive. The architecture was like that, and we walked down a long hallway and got to a big train station, and there were civilians. It were it was very crowded, and there were people and civilians that were talking about being on the train. We got on the train, and what was different about this one that was weird was that it had the bar that comes down off the seat in front of you over your lap. You've been on like roller coaster rides that have that bar that come down that really don't feel like they do anything. Yeah. But if, you know, it had that, it had that bar that clicked over us and the seats were facing forward. Other trains like series colony trains, the seats faced inward, the shuttle that went to the forward base, the seats were inward, you know, like we sat on facing each other and this train, the seats were for all forward. And, um, and it was a big train. It was pretty, pretty good size. So we went in there and it, they, it turned on. You could hear it. They closed it. They closed the doors and it turned on and it lifted. You could feel it lift up like, like it was on a cushion, like a magnetic, like a maglev train to a tunnel. And we went for a short time. You could feel it accelerate. And there was, and it's an, it's a, I'm sorry. I'm kind of bottleneck for words. Um, it doesn't do it justice to say that there was a poof because there was a poof. There was a flat, like, like, a, like a, like a, a camera flash. And, you know, you had that where you're disoriented and you kind of came back to it. Like, and almost along the same lines of like standing up too quick. If you stand up really fast, you kind of have that minute of disorientation. There was that, there was a poof. And then that kind of disorientation. And then you could immediately feel the train slowing down. It was starting to slow down. And it, when it's, when it came to, uh, it came into a tunnel where there were lights, it would, you could feel it drop onto the track and the wheels turning, <laughs> you know, like it was magloving, but then it dropped onto the track and it stopped. And the thing is when we got off, they said you had to drink water, your electrolytes were off where something was, but you had to drink water. You could have health problems. So people were drinking water. They, we got like one little cup of water for us. There were people that had whole bottles. and um, But I got a drink of water and we were on a different planet. Uh, you could, there was the, the uniforms were different. The, you could tell that you were in a different society completely. You could tell that the, like on Mars, like imagine, you know, imagine walking by a vending machine, right? In a hospital. Let's say you're in a hospital or a, no, a, a shopping mall. Let's say you walk through a shopping mall and you look at a vending machine, a Coke machine, 
And then you walk around the corner and the shopping mall, the, the walls are different. Everything's different. And you look at the another vending machine and it's from another era. It's a vending machine that's like 20 years older. It was like, that was the experience. And it said over the, oh, there was a loudspeaker that was talking in a different languages. And it said, welcome to Siri. It was a girl's voice. Welcome to Siri's colony, the most advanced colony in the solar system is what it said. The same thing that it said when I got to Mars, welcome to Mars colony. When we, I'm sorry, when we went into the, when we came from the forward base into Mars, welcome to Mars colony, the most advanced colony in the solar system. That's, they all claim the same thing. So it said this, welcome to Ceres colony, but there was a military, I mean, like I was standing and everybody was in military uniform. And they said, you guys go over here. And we went into a big open area that was, it was a orientation day. And it was like a, like a hangar bay, like two gymnasium sized hangar. And there were craft, there were discs that I remember freaking out because I looked up and there was a chrome disc, the same, like, like that poster on the X-Files, like looking like that flying over us and you could feel it crackling you could feel the elect like static electricity crack make like my our hair stood up and it would it flew right over us and went into an adjacent hangar bay and kind of went down into another hangar bay and i i just remember that me and the guys that i was with that came from mars colony we were dumbfounded we were absolutely dumbfounded and there were a bunch of us um but they made us line up and they made us, they handed us off a piece of paper in German, like a, like a construction paper with words on it. They said, when you're called on, you got to read that. We had to take a, we had to make a pledge, you know, and we had to learn how to do this, the salute. They still did the salute, the Germans, the Heil kind of thing where you put your chest. They made us do that. There was a guy on a podium talking and there were, there were young boys that looked like they were from Germany or from Europe, you know, like they spoke the language they were talking in. They were talking in that language and um, we had, we waited there and I was just completely in, I was completely and utterly in shock for that entire day when that was done. And I described like how the guy threatened us, you know, like you got to say these words and if not, I'll take you over there and you'll give me shot. Is anybody going to die today? And th these were guys with, they had guns all of a sudden, like on Mars colony, there weren't a lot of guys with guns. When I went there, there were, there were guns everywhere. Mm. Uh, people with gun sidearms. And uh, but afterwards they took us in that we 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 went in and we got haircuts and then we got a train ride and we went to our barracks where I would live for the next decade, you know, for more than a decade I would live. It was like a big um underground prison type place. It was a very simple place, but it was like a prison without without bars. If you if you think about when if you call up the picture of a prison in your mind right now when they show on TV, it was like that. Only there were no bars on the door. There was just no wall there. There were three walls with a bed and a little a little um, drawer, like a little desk thing. And that was it. And you walked out and walked to the end of the, and you had to get buzzed out. The door would lock behind us. And uh, outside would be outside of that area. It led to the showers and the bathroom. And there was a cafeteria and a train, and a train stop where we'd get on the trains and go and Guys would go to separate, some guys, most of the guys there where I stayed were mining. They were working in mines that were clearing out areas that they would build more buildings in for more living. But like, like they were rapidly expanding uh, construction on Ceres Colony the entire time I was there. It was rapid. And they were mine. they had mines that they weren't really mining for any kind of material. They were mining to make room, to make new places to live 
you know, they were building out that that's what the mining was doing. So for those that don't know what series is, um, you know, most of us are told when we go to school that we have nine planets, right? And that's our solar system. And, you know, do we get a little bit of the asteroid belt that kind of, so, so where does Ceres fit into this whole story? So Ceres is the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt, and it's big enough to be round. So sorry, flat earth people, it's gravity is, uh, for whatever reason, specific to mass and when a, a body in the cosmos gets big enough, has enough mass to become a round, a sphere. So when it's smaller, they don't, they can hold their shape, but when they get big enough, so Ceres is big enough, it's a dwarf planet. It's about 580 miles in diameter. It's in between Mars and the asteroid belt. So it's orbit, it has a weird orbit, like on a, like the rest of the solar system like this, it has this kind of an off orbit. And uh, it's in between, it's just before the asteroid belt. Vesta is the other one that's smaller and it's kind of closer to, I. I believe it's closer to the inside the asteroid belt, actually. Um, and it's chalky. It's just a big, there was water there. And there were big deposits of water. They were trying to find caverns of water. That The, the urban legend was that they, they were building ET, ancient ET extraterrestrial technologies that were inside pockets of water. So that it was a aquatic species that built them inside the water um, but and there were geysers there so that's like a big part of my testimony is that uh, there was a geyser on Ceres that uh, every so often would go off and water shoot water into space um, that there's entire oceans underground there um, mm. one thing that's neat is while we were writing the book in the last in the last literally like in the last couple weeks of writing the book Jackie Kenner, whom I love and adore, who helped me write the book and edit it. She's got her family, the, the Kenners, Neil, her husband is an awesome guy. I love him. Um, she asked me one day, she's writing the book. She's like, what was, you guys are mining. What was the walls like? And I said, oh, it was like chalky. Like you could like, because yeah, I worked the first day, my first day, they told me to go to the wrong train. They sent me on the wrong train and I didn't show up for flight, for my flight. I didn't go to my spot. The, when I got back, there were two guys there getting ready to kill me. They were gonna, they were gonna execute me if I was trying to run away. And I said, no, no, no. I just went where she told me to. And they, uh, there was a girl that got in trouble because I was directed. And I, I actually worked a day in the mines. I had not been trained uh, on Mars. I got trained to do, to work on ships and do like emergency protocols and stuff. And I never got trained for the mines. And I was like, what is this? I'm not meant for here. But they were like, kind of shut up and go to work. But while we were there, it was very dusty. And the the the, the actual uh, material that series is made out of, you could grab, it's like chalk. It's chalky. I mean, you can sit with your finger and draw in it. And I remember this. So Jackie Kenner asked me this. And she goes, what is, what is the rock like there? And I said, well, it was chalky. And so, because I remember, I remember that they would, they would, they had sonic things with lasers on them that break the wall up and it would be in zero gravity. And then they would go in with vacuums and vacuum the dust out and then lay gravity plating in and move in. That's how they moved in. That's how they went in the mines. So the floor was on what had power and had gravity. So I remember that in the mines, I was actually looking at rooms that were off the side that had no gravity. 
that zero, you know, microgravity. Anyhow, when she said that to me and I described it, I said, wait a minute, I'm, I'm going to go look because the Dawn probe did. And they said that most of it, I think if I'm saying it right, is sodium carb carbonite, sodium, that it's chalk. It confirmed that. So I went and I was shocked. This is like, so I had been talking about series for years and I had known that I always in my back of my mind, I knew the consistency, but nobody asked me about it. And I never went on record of, you know, I never said anything about it. It just never got asked. But when she said that, and I put the two and two together, I went and immediately researched it. And I went, oh my God, it, NASA confirms that it's basically whatever. It, I mean, if anybody can go look it up on, you know, Wikipedia, uh, look up series on Wiki and you'll see, but it's made out of like uh, sodium carbonate. I, I'm saying it wrong. I don't know my chemicals that great, but sure. it's basically chalk. It's basically a big um, chunk of chalk in the asteroid belt that's got water, uh, briny, salty water in it. It's got salt water um, deposits. Wow. Confirmations. Can I just ask, like, do you remember, like, any vegetation? Like, did I mean, could they plant? So, real, real food was a luxury. So, you know, it's kind of starting to get that way today. You know, mm -hmm. like I used when I grew up, we used to eat Burger King, and and it, we thought it was real food, and it's gotten worse and worse over time, and it's like now it's not real. So. Um, <laughs> Real food is is tends to be better food. You know, let's face it. You got to pay bit top dollar for it. Now, Ceres Colony didn't. I was told that there were areas that had they had um, agriculture mm. there, but I never witnessed it. I never mm. laid eyes on anything agricultural. There were some people that had there were plant like little um, fern plants that were in pots that were on streets, like they had street lights in some places, and they'd have a little fern. You know, there was there was there were plants but not really not not in a way that that you would think in a city and uh we had food replicators we had we had uh machines that could print food for us and so um that was fake food and it had all your um so even though i, I just i had a um i had a i was invited to a to a like a book thing anyhow and we were talking about this and we went to breakfast a bunch of people that had read my book we went to breakfast mm -hmm. and we were i we talked in depth about food replicator it was slimy kind of it was kind of like a mushy food it was always moist you know the what the replicator had they had better replicators but where i worked on the ship in the back of the ship we had a replicator that only had like five or six six or seven different choices mac and cheese potatoes sauerkraut pot roast you know it was and it was always very slimy mm. um so the real food was a luxury but there were replicators in the front the in the command center they had a replicator with like 200 things like it could make a muffin it could make muffins that were good um but the what i'm the point i'm trying to get across is that those slimy food like even though it was mac and cheese it had all of our nutrients like i was never hungry there like i i never had any kind of digestive problems or any kind of like you know the, like they made you eat you had to eat something three times a day and if you didn't you'd go to the doctor you'd get in trouble you'd get real like you, you couldn't skip lunch you were it was mandatory that you had to eat but after a while of it um 
food really wasn't, I wasn't, I, I wasn't hungry all the time. Like it gave you all your nutrients that the synthesized food basically covered the basis. So what you're telling me is that the slimy synthesized food on series was better for you than McDonald's. <laughs> in, yeah, in a way. That's right. So, you know, our carbs, the food here is meant to fill you up and then make you twice as hungry. You know, uh, this was like military stuff, like they were trying to keep us working. So it was like an MRE worth of calories or how they had it all worked out. So they could adjust what was in the food with the, the, with the technology of how we were getting it. So you were sold from one corporation to another, which, you know, gets to the whole point that you were making in, in your book, which is like, corporations are actually running business off planet, not formal kingdoms and governments like you would think, even though I would say America now is a corporatocracy itself. Uh, but that's another conversation. But you just talk to us a little bit about that. And 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 then, of course, with Ceres, it's a German corporation. So we'll, we'll talk to us about that. So they're the colonies are incorporated. So they're all structured as it as that, you know, you think about countries are sovereign, supposedly, but they're not anymore. It's like corporations are running everything here. Our I I we're kind of in between that. Like they were just blunt about it up there. They were just open about it. Um but it was regarded as a serious colony corp. And um they were subservient to um, Antarctica. So there were another German breakaway in Antarctica. We referred to that as high command. And there were bases around Jupiter in what were called temporal bubbles that were um, that the high command had to obey, had to answer to. So that was the hierarchy. And I believe those were ETs that were out there, like that the Germans are doing what they're told by uh, the Orion group or the Draco as some people want to call I would call them the Orion group because it's really not just one species. Uh, it's many species headed off by a reptilian group. So um, that was it. And they were, these were people that were this. So the society and they didn't refer to themselves as German or Nazis. So to be, to be totally, to totally disclose what it was, they referred to themselves as Deutsch. They were the Deutsch people. So they were people that were at the end of World War II or mid-World War II, got the technology and the contact with ETs and got out of here after, you know, the war. And then they came back to the earth and they still interact with us um, on some on some level. But they referred to themselves as Deutsch. They had their own money. We had francs for money there. They had their own culture. They had replica cities of European cities. They had uh, European architecture. And I haven't been to Europe. So, um, you know, that's something that I that I say, like they had, there were areas that had long rows of lots of columns. They had lot, it, a lot of the architecture on Ceres Colony looked like it was, you know, when you go into downtown, uh, you know, Cleveland or Chicago or New York, and you walk into some of the older buildings there from the 20s, how they have big marble, marble steps and they're rounded and, you know, brass handrails. It, it was that kind of architecture is what a lot of series colony was very old. So I believe that they were there. Like when I got there, that was the first thing that I, like Mars colony, like when I got off the train from Mars to series colony, like I said, it was very shocking. 
um, you knew you were somewhere different. Mars Colony looked like everything was built recently. It looked like you were in a modern place. The, every, the carpet was newer. You know, the walls were clean. It looked like a newer facility. Sirius Colony, there was rust. So, you know, like the, the, the handrail that were bolted into the concrete was rusty. So it was older and there were the, there were places in the hangar bay when you looked up at the, at the ceiling where they had dents, it had dents in it. Like there was, it had, it had age. So, um, series colony was older than the Mars colony. Now where you were received in series colony, were you primarily dealing with humans, mm -hmm. extraterrestrials, as you would call them? Like what was the, what was the arrangement in your, in the beginning, for years, uh, they were just humans. Like every, I, I only came in contact with humans. I was immediately put on. So after the wrong day of um, going to the mines rather than flight, the next day I went to my ship. And it was an old submarine. Um, this is one of the things that got researchers to work with me in the beginning because I said back then, I said, look, it was a submarine. The reason I remember that it was a submarine and it was tight, everything was tight in there. Um, there were, they locked us in the lower deck, the lower couple decks of the submarine and we were maintenance. So we would change oils. We would change fluids. We would let pressure off in places. The, there was a computer that told us what to do. You got a step-by-step -step instructions every day. You know, I had a number. So, oh, so, 079 go to the crib and get this so this tool this tool and this tool and report back and i'd do and i'd be carrying tools and say now go to this section and show me a map go to this section of the ship and oh find this valve and open it and so that would i do then come back and i go back to the screen and that was my day that was like groundhog day for years that i did that but the reason i know that it was a submarine is those damn doors it had the doors that closed and you had to hop over the bottom of the door. So, you know, the door and you turn that you see in uh, like the tight, whatever, you see them all the time, but it had those doors everywhere. So if we were in a hurry, which oftentimes we were because the, the screen would tell you to hurry up because you have much more to, you had a list of things to get done that day. So if we were in a hurry, you'd be hustling and you'd hit your shin on the damn threshold of that door because you had to hop. It was a tall, you know, 10, 10, 12, in, it was 10 inches of that you had to step over because the door closed on it. They were old World War II kind of submarine and it was cramped. There were pipes everywhere. There was, it was cramped, it was claustrophobic. And um, I just never, I never forgot those stand hitting. I, I, I tried for the life of me. It didn't matter. I remember waking up in the barracks and going, I'm going to hit my leg on that damn door today. I knew that I was going to do it. And like, and I consciously kept fighting to train myself to not. But the thing is, it just overloaded us with tasks so that you did. You ended up bumping your tripping on it all the time, constantly. And um, that's something that stayed with me. But I was one of the first guys, so researcher that I worked with, that was something that I independently said without any, nobody, nobody said that there were submarines converted. I independently said that. And then other whistleblowers came forward from several different sources that the Germans took submarines and converted them into ships in the beginning. When they first got the technology, it was, it was the quickest they could get into space. So they took submarines 
and put anagram on because it could go into because the hull could handle it in vacuum. And uh, so that was something that was one of my very first pieces of evidence that other whistleblowers had confirmed. So I'd said it independently. So, um, and I worked on that ship for a good eight years. Um, it was a, it was like Groundhog Day, man. It was like, it was miserable. It was doing a job that you didn't get paid for, basically. And so I didn't really have any kind of social life. I always wanted friends again, like I had in Peru. And uh, I had a really, I had a real need for human interaction that I didn't have during that time. And it was, it led, I was very depressed and I was actually suicidal at, at a point um, just because, because of the lack of quality human interaction. So I was having, I had people that I worked with, but it wasn't, it wasn't a quality interaction. Like I didn't have any friends. And so that was something it's weird because having friends is something that's big to me now. And I always like people, I'm like, no, you don't get it. We're friends, right? Like we are friends and people in my life that are my friends are like, okay, Tony, but see you later. We're done. You were done here. And uh, <laughs> so friendship to me is like, uh, like uh, something that's different than most people. And I didn't realize this until recently after I read, you know, after writing the book and I realized that all those years I went like a good, eight to 10 years of just being absolutely desperate and even longer out of the 20 back the whole time, really, I was just desperate for friendship. And, um, so I have a different view on it now. I like, I have a different, I have, I express friendship differently and it's probably unhealthy, you know, mm -hmm. like I probably have, or I'm not a friend at all. I'm also a very solitary person. So I, you know what I mean? Because of that time as well, like I'm a very solitary person. Um, but after that, uh, we went to a new ship, a modern, a more modern ship. After that ship got decommissioned, and it only had like a two-inch threshold. The doors were pocket doors that is the same thing. Like it could, it could, in case there was a breach in the hull, the doors would shut. And the same exact way that that ship had those doors that could close off, but they had a little pocket door, and it was only like a two-inch threshold. And it was such a, it was wonderful relief to never trip on it. We, I, you know, I might've tripped on it a couple of times, but really it was a piece of cake compared to that ship. It is just um, fascinating. Like so counterintuitive, right? Because of all the things you would say, like, what do you, like if I was to take a quiz before this interview, what kind of craft would they put Tony on to run missions off of series? I would not have said a submarine. I mean, that would have been like the last right. thing. But I guess it's because, I mean, it's just basically a flying cigar. It's just really, it's rounded. It's solid. It's uh, pressurized. pressurized. So if you, if you think about World War II in the World War II era, and they want to take, build a spaceship and they're in a hurry. So they have the engine, they have the power plant, they have all these things and they're in a big hurry. It, they it, it's easier to retrofit something that exists in an airplane if you take an airplane and turn it into a spaceship it's actually too weak that you know what i mean it's a pressurized thing but it's weak it would have to be completely a submarine hull is meant to go very deep in the sea so to go into space and actually have the pressure going the other way the hull was strong enough wow. so it makes sense when you think about it like that like me looking back on it now it makes sense but um 
and it was antiquated like the thing it the one that we were on over the years that i worked on it in the beginning it was all maintenance that we did but after a while we were doing repair we couldn't keep up with the repairs like things we things were corroding things that were corroded we would cut out valves we'd cut them off and put new ones and we couldn't keep up with them at the rate that they were corroding the systems were failing on the ship and we didn't have enough manpower or resources to keep it going. And there were a few systems that were unrepairable that the engineers were aware. They were there were valves on the ship that once they corroded, there was no way we could get to them. You'd have to rip the whole thing apart. So it was eventually decommissioned. And um, there was an accident. I was hurt badly. And um, it kind of led me to be promoted. Um, and it was a active mission. So it led to a promotion and I went, I moved from when that ship was decommissioned, I moved from uh, maintenance to cargo engineering and I became a cargo engineer and I actually had rank over the guys that were working in the cargo bay. So, I, you know, I didn't have an official rank, but I had guys that were, I was in charge. I was roundaboutly in charge. Like I gave them the reports on where to stack the stuff. And I entered the data on the size and the weight of all the all the cargo. And I read the report to the command guys on the ship of what available space we had on the ship. Basically, that's what I did for the last, you know, I, I always say about two years that I was there. But so much happened in that time that it may have been three or four years that on that ship. Um, yeah, there was just that... so much that happened. And that really opens up a bulk of the story because up to that point, <clears throat> you're basically slave labor mm -hmm. doing these missions. But but then after the accident promotion, they actually let you make money. Mm -hmm. That was fascinating. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a few directions I want to go at this point because uh, the, the whole money piece was, was I, I read that and I was like, but before we get to the money piece, I want to talk about the nature of the missions because you described and you described this on other news, but I want to, I want you to tell my audience this time and uh, the way that they assured success. So they, they we called it anti-telephoning. They called it the anti-telephoning. So that was the, that was the term for it. What I was told was that, it, because the, of course, when they briefed us on on time travel and how it worked, um, they did brief us. We the first question is why don't they go back in time and change everything that ever goes wrong? Like why don't you fix everything that ever happened badly to everybody? Why are we even doing this? They could go forward in time and get all the information that they need, right? So why don't they just go ten thousand years into the future and take that technology? and bring it back right so our mission our ship's mandate was not to boldly go and explore strange new worlds that was not what the mission was for our ship the mission was to acquire technology period by any means necessary to trade goods or tech for tech better tech or to steal it or to do whatever it was it was it was an all or nothing effort to inquire to acquire advanced technology in any any way shape or form there were entire deals where we took cargo we took shiploads of cargo and we got a math formula as payment because it was a new technology so that there were many things like that um man i forget where you were 
it's the anti-telephoning. So, so you're going to describe to us what right. that so is. What they did, what, why they briefed us on that. So what, like I said, that, that was the question. Why don't you just go in the future and get their tech? What they said, what they had found is that in the beginning, when the Germans acquired the technology, they did try that thing. They did try aggressive anti-telephoning. And what happened was beings from outside of time space, there are beings that live not in 3D with us here. Beings from outside of time space would punish them for that. There are laws regarding what, how much time that they could alter. <clears throat> they could travel time, but they couldn't alter time. And there was punishment. He said there was, and one officer, I was walking down a hallway with an officer having the conversation. He said, imagine being taken out of your body and living life as a bug, as a small bug in a swamp and being eaten over and over again, or be, or some life where you're just miserable as an animal or something. And then be for a thousand years, for a thousand years, and then being put back in your life instead of saying, look, don't do it again, or you're going to get more. That's the level of punishment from those people. These beings could do, they could, they could punish, they could imprison your consciousness for millennia and put you back into your body. So um, one of their early leaders or generals or something got punished in that way in the very first, in the beginning. And so it was never, so what they found was um, they could leave uh, and then come back before we left slightly at the distance of traveling that time. So they found a loophole and the ship would come back slightly before five minutes, say, before it left. And if the ship didn't come back, they know the mission failed, they would scrub the mission. The ship wouldn't go. And then if the ship came back, they would come, they could see it five minutes away. They could see it with, with optics and go, oh, it's there. Go ahead and send them. And they knew the mission was successful. So they could schedule very aggressive missions. And this was what was going on in the first, in the submarine ship, the Blitz bus. Um, this is what was going on that we were doing anti-telephone emissions, but we were locked in the bottom of it. I didn't see, we didn't have a window. I never saw Starfield until the second ship that I was on, the Max von Laue. I never saw the Starfield. And the first time you see Starfield in space is, um, you know, it's like one of those moments for your whole soul, for all, all of your life. If you believe, you know what I mean? We live over, it's like one of those, it's a very profound moment. The first time you look out the window nakedly with no earth and no sun around, like, you know, mm. and you see the actual amount of stars that the human eye can see, which is a lot. That's a very bright thing. It's not bright, but it's a very complex thing where you see way more stars than, than uh, what we see on earth at any ever and so the first time you see starfield is like you're aware of like just how how ridiculous it is to think that we're alone i mean it's absolutely preposterous because you know there's just so many stars that are nearby that um most people don't realize how how extremely how extremely dense the cosmos really are the numbers involved most people don't we've been trained to not think about it um but to explain the anti-telephoning mission, so the way I say it is, you know, we leave at 8 a.m. on Ceres Colony. And at 7.55 a.m., five minutes before we left, five minutes away at flying full speed, they would appear. 
so that they would fly back at full speed and not get back until 8.01 or a few seconds after they left. So that, that way it doesn't break the law that of those beings, what they put down. But because they knew where the ship would appear, they were waiting for it to see they were looking and the speed of light shows it. So they knew the ship was successful. And then we did that anti-telephoning. And so there was time travel. The other thing, well, I kind of don't want to get into a big long tangent. I guess, but it looks like I We was... can make it a short tangent. Okay, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> um, or we could just pause you in the middle of the tangent and pick up some other time. Yeah, just... maybe. Well, I, I don't want to <laughs> explain ahead. a lot of it. I don't want to explain a lot of how I know. Oh, okay, there's, there's whatever. I'm going to leave a lot out, but what I'm basically I'm going to say is that it looks like the time on Earth that I was gone is about 18 years. So from 82 to 2000, it was right in 2000 when I had the big life change. Like I woke up one day and went, oh my God, it's over. And I felt completely different. And it was like the moment that it was over. It's something that you don't know for sure, but just kind of like you'd have to experience it to know what I mean by this. And I always was shocked because it was 18 years. But when I went back and did the math, so long years after, I look back on that date as when it was over. And I go, that was only 18 years and it had to be 20 years. I don't get it. I did the math on anti-telephoning one day. So if you took me, if you knocked off eight hours from the, you have 20 years that you're gone and you live an extra day, but you come back at the same time. So you lose eight hours. It's about six years of Monday through Friday out of that time. It's about six years that it would take to cut two years off of, you know, of time. Uh, so, you know, uh, and so that worked out, the math worked out. What I'm saying is these missions, when I looked at it, and these are things that panned out later when I went back and looked at it, not, you know, during, because I didn't understand what was going on. Um, so that I was gone 20 years, but really on earth, it was 18 years because two years of it were these anti-telephoning missions. We didn't always do that too. I, I would say that especially when I was on the MVL, there were missions that we went to other solar systems. We went very far away in the galaxy. We actually went to other galaxies on occasion. So we did fly extra galactic and do trade missions. Um, they had to use a natural portal. We got sick when we did it. We, you know, we would jump, the ship would jump and everybody would get vomit and get sick because of the natural portal. There's a lot of great deal of energy, whatever happens when you portal. Um, so it's worth saying that, but we didn't always do those missions. Sometimes we just zipped around. Sometimes we went to Earth, we went to the Kuiper Belt, and that was it. And back to series. So we didn't always do anti-telephoning missions. It wasn't ever. And there was most of the time we made four or five stops a day, sometimes more. But most of the time we would we would start out the day and do the FAR mission first and trade. And then what cargo we got, we would bring back and distribute to places in the solar system. So we would split cargo with other colonies according to deals. Um, it was complex. Here's the thing. Um, <laughs> you know, I, and I can't, I, I, I really, I can't get into in this interview, all of the connections that I made while reading your book because of the work that I do with people that I work with and that our ministry serves. But one of the things that I've been aware of for a long time is that there is a lot of off-planet trade that happens. And a lot of it 
is for technology. And I knew that before reading your book. I mean, I, I knew that before hearing about some of the data that was coming from researchers in the UFO community. Like there was just, it came out as we were working with people and, and their memories and all. It, it just came out. There's all of this trade and, and the trade, it, it I mean, it involves all kinds of, things and, and one of the things that we found that were getting traded was souls human souls were getting traded um intergalactically among other goods and stuff i call it I, I i just tell people i call it the babylonian soul trade that's probably an antiquated term but you know it it is no surprise to me that there is all this trade going on and um it's just so interesting when it's so plainly stated because you guys are like literally in your experience on craft uh german craft no less trading all over the place for more technology to obviously advance whatever they're working on and um of course it comes back to antarctica because it doesn't everything so <laughs> i i want to um i want to now talk because there's a number of other directions i wanted to, but i definitely want to hit this before we close out this show money on series because mm. that was just so interesting and 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 you said in your book on their money they have a picture of the war of 1600 mm -hmm. what and they had cryptocurrency in 1990 80 okay so talk first of all how did you as a slave get money and then how did you learn about what the money was was going on there Right. So I never really understood banking when I was there. Like nobody sat me down and said, and firstly, so when you say I was getting paid money, it was about 20, my, my base rate was about 20 francs a week. So, which had the same buying power, give or take as 20 or $30 does American. So I, you know, I could buy a, a train ride and a good dinner and a sandwich and a drink. That was my weekly pay. Sometimes I'd get more. So it was a, there was a profit sharing system on the ship. The reason that I got paid was because the command crew, I would sit in on command briefings. So myself and the other, there were two other, um, there, there was another engineer that was the exact same rank that me. So I was in charge of two cargo bays on the port side of the ship. There was another cargo engineer that was the exact same as me that was in charge of two cargo bays on the starboard side of the ship. And then there was a guy that outranked us both, two of them, and a actual series colony indigenous person, like an officer that ran the main cargo bay at the rear of the ship. So it was a big cargo bay and they had authority over us. So their cargo bay was much bigger. Um, the pay was as such where because we sat in on the briefings so they needed myself and the guy from the other side to sit in and report how much room we had in our cargo bay at any given at every morning and they had brief they had mission briefings first thing in the morning so i would ride a different train i left a little bit earlier and i rode it and i got dropped off at the front of the ship with the command crew instead of the slave crew that went in the rear of the ship and so I would go in and I rode the elevator up to the command center. There was an elevator. It was glass. The, the walls of the elevator were glass. So as you went up, you could see the decks and they had like a little area, you know, there, the, the elevator. 
and but I would go to the top and then go to the command crew and I got breakfast there off the good replicator. I got muffins. And so that's where I would usually eat a roll or a muffin or a Danish. That was it counted as my breakfast and coffee. And so I would, and I would sit in and the meetings would be in German and they'd hit a button. And then all of a sudden the translator would come on. I could understand what they were saying. Um, they were saying, they all decided, they all said, look, we're, we, the ship is successful. We're starting to get trade. They got, they got a paycheck. These guys got a paycheck. They said, we're going to do profit sharing. And somebody brought up, we sh well, we should pay these guys. They're here at the table. And they voted on it and they gave us pay. They gave me 20 bucks a week, you know, as a base rate. And when the ship was very successful, there were times when I got a 40 or $50 bonus, Frank's bonus. And so I'll get to the pay. So what happened was it was on Friday, Friday, and or it was on the final mission day. So there were times when it was carried, but it was basically on Friday. And we would go to a trade window at the end, the hangar bay, the hangar area that where we parked the ship and we actually got on and off the ship and got on the train to go. That area was something like 19 kilometers long. It was a massive cavern. And at the other end of it were doors that opened. There was an airlock that was thousand feet tall and a few thousand feet wide that opened up to space that had, that was an airlock that a, an entire spaceship could fit in a giant spaceship. And so sometimes there were, it was open. It got stuck open and there was low oxygen in the hangar area, but it was such a massive space that it didn't lose the, you know, if you think about opening a door to space on one end, you couldn't tell on the other end that it was open. There was such a big, mm. it was a, such a big area. Um, at the very end of it on the other side. So something like two kilometers, two and a half kilometers from our hangar slip. So our ship had its own slip where it came the same time always from our slip you could walk and go to the trade window and it looked like a like a it looked like a 1920s greyhound bus station they had small mosaic tiles in the floor it had pictures in the floor and um you went up to a window and there were some rude ladies that worked there and they were explaining it. and i said look i'm they gave me a piece of paper they said go to the trade window that was on the very first day that i got my very first paycheck they handed me a piece of paper and they said, don't lose this paper. This is your account and go to the trade window and hand it to the lady and she'll set you up with your money. And the reason that I deduced that it was cryptocurrency that they had access to was she was telling me, she said, what kind of account do you want? And there was a facial recognition account. So there was an account, a bank account that had you could pay a few francs a month and you didn't have to carry a card or carry money with you. They had facial, it would recognize your face everywhere you went to enter. Anytime you did any kind of money transaction with your phone or a machine or at a restaurant, it would access, it would see your face and take the money out of your account. But you had to pay, you had to subscribe to that. Um, she asked me, I said, look, I need to make money. She said, you're, she explained, she handed me a pamphlet and she said, these yield interests and these accounts have this kind of interest, or you can use the blockchain and the something chain to be fair, to be accurate. I don't remember exactly blockchain, but I remember chain. And she said, this, these are all these different currencies that are in this chain, it's digital. And some of them gain value very quickly and some of them lose. And I said, well, I'm not gonna do that. She's like, well, you should put some of your money in it because you might get lucky and make money. And I was like, it's a chain. I, I had been through mind fracture and I had been abused. And the word chain scared the shit out of me. 
And so I didn't, I didn't want to do any of that. So I put my money in a regular account, like a standard old account. And I was trying to save it. And the first day I took 20 bucks with me and I bought a ticket. I bought a one-way ticket. I didn't know I didn't. The ticket was like $2. The pass was like $3.95, right? It's for the day pass. So I bought the $2 one. I had no idea what I was doing. And there were separate lines. There was a long distance line that had a few stops. And there was another line that was cheaper that had a million stops. I took the cheapest on the cheapest ticket. And it was a one-way deal. And when, so when you got off, I didn't know you had to buy another ticket. So the guys in the crew told me to go to the red light district. And that's how that happened. Um, but I learned, I got, I bought like a chicken teriyaki on a stick, real food. It was the first thing that I got. I didn't get a sandwich. It was too, too, I just trying to, and it was still like 12 bucks. It was expensive for what, you know what I mean? Like, and, um, on my first, I remember my first trip because it was like a kid with its first said taste of freedom. So it was a big day for me. You know, that day was, was very, it was a special day out of a, out of a rough 20 years. That was a special day for me. But, um, later on I saved up money. I was, I was, I began to save and I got it down to where I would buy the day pass and I'd go right around a few stops and then go back. And I was given freedom under the condition that I showed up to work the next day that, and that I maintained my productivity score. Everybody had a productivity. They had a very um, advanced way of putting a score on what you did each day so that they knew that some days, you know, they, they, they were really scientific in how they studied people's productivity on the ships. And so they said, you can go out all you want, stay out all night, as long as you show up and hit your numbers you're fine. You can do whatever you want. And as soon as you began to deviate, then you would, you know, be, you would be disciplined. Mm. So I would love to explore that, but uh, we'll save that. If we get to it in another time, you're available uh, because there's so much more there, right? Once you start going down, that's a whole other very relevant and important part of your story, but I want to close this podcast on the subject of the war of 1600, just because it was printed on the money. And this was a shock to me because I'll tell you what, it was not in my seventh grade history book, friend. Thank you. So I was on a tangent. I remember you asked, I wanted to address that when you asked about it earlier. So thanks for bringing it. I went off on a tangent about them. You know, it's, it's when I start talking about, it, I start reliving that. I see the, that. On the money, on the back of the money, they they had so there was printed money. So I, I didn't pay for the facial recognition. I got printed money and put it in my pocket, francs, and it was a durable. It wasn't cloth money like ours. It was more like a plastic, but it was very durable. It was like probably a metal in there, um, but and it had holographic designs. But on the front, it would have like, you know, an old German guy with the spike helmet, the one spike on his helmet, and on the back, they, it always had battle scenes from the 30 year war from 1600 to 1633, I think, or 1602 to six, something like that. And they, that was why the other thing we were talking about the pillars that they were making horses out of, that was their mottos. We did it with horses that they, they feel. So their, their history on series colony is different than history. We learn on earth. There, what they believed was that the 1600-year war, or the, I'm sorry, the, the 30-year war in the 1600s was the first time that indigenous humans 
defeated an ET force with horses. Say so we did it with horses. And so what they believe is that the Catholic Church, the Vatican, and which at the time you could not practice any other religion other than Catholicism in Europe. You'd be put to death. The Spanish Inquisition and all those things, that was what was going on. Because I went back as I had all these memories and it came up in interviews, you know, years ago. So I went back and actually started researching that. I went and read about it. And I'm, it's like uh, they believed that the Catholic religion was, you know, dominated Europe, that it was led by an extraterrestrial influence. And they, the six, the 30 year war was a war of religious freedom. At the end of the war, they were victorious and that created the Protestant religion. It also was when the Amish were created at the end, as a result of that war, at the same time, the Amish religion and the, I, there's two of them uh, broke off. And that was a, that was a direct result of the victory of that war. So it fractured Europe into more than one religion other than Catholicism. So the Muslims were still going, but Catholic, they, like that was, but Europe was completely dominated by Catholicism. But, and they, they won religious freedom was at the end of that war. And there was the Deutsch um, culture that did that. So they were very proud of that. They said, and they said, we did it with horses. So they, they were saying that they defeated an extraterrestrial influence on mankind back then. And that, so that was their, that was their point in history that they were very proud of. And so the, a lot of the artwork and there were sculptures, like I said, horses everywhere. They had horses all over the place. And the, the European eagle, the white-tailed eagle was everywhere too. That was their, that was their main symbol. Uh, there was like, everything was an eagle, you know, um, the different departments. When you went to the school, it was a book, eagle with a book under it. And then when you went to the, you know, to the military, it was the eagle with swords under it, you know, like that, it was, everything was the eagle. Um, but that was an interesting thing that they had that on the money and, and a lot of artwork too. There was a lot of artwork on, you know, if you'd be going on the wall, there'd be, uh, it back then they had cannons and horses. They were on horses with swords, but they had guns and cannons as well. And so those are a lot of the battle scenes. Some of the artwork, um, that they had was, was from that time. That was a, that was a big thing. Like that was like really part of. The same way that we have the 4th of July in the United States, they had the 30-year war on Ceres Colony. I mean, the de the detail is just ridiculous. I, I mean, so fascinating so many times. You know, Tony, I, I, there's a lot more to talk about regarding your story. And you know that because you've been doing this for a few years now. But I'm not going to be able to keep you all night. So, um, folks, I, I, I'm going to say this. We're going to give Tony an opportunity to sleep. <laughs> but okay. we'll see if at some point in the future he doesn't join us again because there's a lot more. Because once you get to the red light district, my friend, and, and that whole part of the story opens up, there's so much more there, including how the thing wraps up. I mean, and even why you probably got your memories back at all i mean that that part and there's also some other things i would like to explore with you such as the 10 years that you got taken out while you were out and maybe some other things but we'll save that folks um you've been listening to discovering truth with dan Duvall. be sure if you if you've been interested in this email uh interview check out series colony cavalier and 
Until next time, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Visit me at dandevall.com where you'll discover merch, books, and the opportunity to engage in our private social network. Join the tribe by subscribing to our email list and supporting this podcast.